a mother to five children and the granddaughter of American Indian Movement co-founder Dennis Banks, Rose Downwind was only 31 years old when she disappeared in October 2015. Two months later, her body would be discovered and the unraveling truth about her brutal murder would come to light. This is a story of Rose Downwind. Hey guys, this is Osh. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. Today's story is a listener's request. I have a friend who has a personal connection to this story. She's actually friends with um, the sister who I'm going to be telling you about today. So once I heard about this story and read it, I immediately didn't want to share it. Let me tell you the story of Rose Downwind. Rose lived in Bemidji, Minnesota, and I think that's how you say it, Bemidji, which is located in northern Minnesota and is a central city for three Indian reservations, the Red Lake Res, the White Earth Indian Res, and the Leech Lake Indian Res. And a fun fact about Bemidji is that they are the self-proclaimed curling capital of the United States. Oh, like the the broom and the and the rock. <laughs> yeah, in right? the Olympics. Yeah, and just and you just yeah. brush the. I, I could do. I bet I'd be a good curler. <laughs> I like to sweep. Yeah, it looks it looks fun, but it looks hard too. Um, and they allegedly are the birthplace of legendary Paul Bunyan. And I don't know if that's a legend or if that's a real person. Is Listen Paul Bunyan a, a real person? I don't think he is. Maggie, I feel like you would know this. <laughs> is he not? Isn't it just like a. A folktale? I have no idea. Are you Googling it? Hold on. (laughs) Hold on, listeners. We're Googling if Paul Bunyan is real or not. Oh, yeah. It's a folktale. He's a giant lumberjack. Oh, okay. (laughs) With like a blue ox or something? It's just a story. We like this this pod to be educational. Everybody's going to (laughs) learn a little fact or two. So she's of the Red Lake Band of Chippewa Indians and the Ojibwe tribes. The Ojibwe population is approximately 320,000, with 170,760 living in the U.S. and 160,000 living in Canada. The Ojibwe speak the Anishina Abimawan language. Historically, they dwelled in wigwams and relied on hunting and fishing for survival. The Red Lake Band of Chippewa Indians that she also belongs to is, a, is unique in the aspect that it is a closed reservation meaning all land is held in common by the tribe and there's no private property. Uh, They were not reassigned to it by the U.S. government. The tribe claimed the land by right and conquest. So kind of like how our land is here on the Cherokee boundary, we didn't get this land from the government, and it's not a reservation, it's a boundary because we bought it all back. Mm -hmm. We actually own our land. I've never heard of a closed reservation before, so that was interesting. Yeah, it's just a little bit different because it sounds like you can't own it as... A person, right? Like you just have to lease or rent from the tribe. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Is that like is that like anybody or like enrolled members have to lease from the tribe? I think the tribe owns it. It was a closed boundary that I'm sure they would only lease to tribal members. So let's get into the story of Rose Downwind. Rose Downwind, and I'm going to try my best to say her Indian name correctly. Miss Kabanuki which means morning of the red dawn, was born November 8th, 1983 in Minneapolis to Darla Banks of the Oneida and Leech Lake tribes and her father, Francis Boog Downwind of the Red Lake Nation. She is of the Red Lake Band of Chippewa Indians and the Ojibwe tribe in northern Minnesota, and she is of the Bear Clan. Rose is described as a beautiful, loving, and vibrant woman. She loved being a mother and absolutely loved her five children. 
And when I read in her obituary, it described that her life was an adventure. Uh, it talked about her being a part of her paternal uncle, Tutter, and mom, Georgia Downland's family. She lived with them off and on throughout her life, and it was the cultural way to have their extended family be caretakers of them. And I can relate to that because you know, I grew up with my grandma and grandpa. Um, my mom was still around. You know, she's still part of my life, but like I stayed with my aunts a lot. So I think it's pretty common uh, in Indian families to have extended families that help raise you or, you know, just be a big part of your life and have big families. She was also the granddaughter of AIM co-founder Dennis Banks. And if you're not familiar with AIM, which I'm sure most of you are, it's the American Indian Movement. Her funeral included a wake on January 6, 2015, and also included a traditional service, including traditional prayers. So, like I mentioned earlier, she had five kids, and she also had a boyfriend, and his name was Marcello Simarusti. And I think I'm saying that name right. I'm just saying it how it's spelled. And if I'm mispronouncing it, it's totally an error, but I really don't. It's not that important if I say his <laughs> name wrong because I really don't have a lot of respect for this guy. He was the father of some or all of her kids. I really couldn't find a definite answer on that. But a few days before October 20th, the couple broke up, according to Rose's family. Because it was an abusive relationship and an incident had occurred that involved the police. On October 20th, Rose had threatened to call the cops with proof on her phone that he had violated her no-contact order by showing them her phone. And this was according to the news article on Red Light Nation News. Simaresti tried to grab Rose's phone, and they bumped into each other, and she fell down a flight of stairs. When he checked on her, she was bleeding and had no pulse. So instead of calling for help and calling 911 or the police or anybody, he instead called his cousin, 27-year-old Christopher Davis, to help dispose of the body. And Davis drove from St. Paul to Bemidji to help him. So there were already domestic violence issues? Yes. According to the family, there was. And on October 20th, he apparently came over for whatever reason. And and I'm going to go over a timeline that may go into more detail. So you're saying he was at her house. They bumped into each other and she just fell down a flight of stairs. That was the initial story. Yes. Well, it sounds like he's trying to say they like argued over a phone, maybe. Right. Right. He was, she was trying to show him the phone and someone was trying to take it. So it sounds more like a, an altercation. Yeah. Like an accident. So I'm going to go over a timeline of the incidences during this course. Um, It's kind of lengthy, but just bear with me. And I found this timeline on BemidjiPioneer.com and it just kind of highlights the day. So on October 19th, 2015, Rose was last seen at a Target in Bemidji. On October 21st, 2015, which is the day after the incident, Rose's mother, Darla, received a text from Rose's phone saying she was in the Twin Cities. And I wasn't familiar with the Twin Cities, so I Googled it, and it's Minneapolis and St. Paul. Later, they learned this text was sent by Christopher Davis, Simaresti's cousin. On October 28th, 2015, Downland's family reports her missing. They haven't heard from her, they haven't seen her, and they were suspicious. So she always picked up her benefits. She always picked them up on the same day. So when she didn't pick them up, she knew something was wrong. So they reported her missing. November 2nd, 2015, this is 13 days later, reality TV star Dwayne Dog Chapman, Dog the Bounty Hunter, offers a $10,000 reward for information about Rose's disappearance. And he searched for answers. And he also gave an interview with uh, his story and his uh, investigation on IndianCountryToday.com. So if you want to read more about that interview, you can check that article out. 
On November 4th, 2015, they questioned Brandon Ross back about her disappearance for the first time, and he'll come into play later. On November 5th, 2015, police suspect foul play in her disappearance and named Davis and Simaresti as persons of interest. November 14th, 2015, this is 25 days later, about 150 volunteers participate in a public search for Rose north of Bemidji. On December 7th, 2015. This is 51 days later. Samaresti turns himself in. He admits to killing Rose and tells police where to find her. So after 51 days, maybe the the pressure of people searching for her, the family not giving up, he finally gave into the pressure and turned himself in. So on December 9th, 2015, Samaresti leads police to the burial site to find a makeshift grave northwest of Bemidji where they recovered her body. Rose's body was found burned in a shallow four-foot grave off of Balsam Road, about 300 yards off an ATV trail. Brandon Rossback is arrested in connection to her death. December 11th, an autopsy determined by Ramsey County Med- Medical Examiner's Office determined Rose died of homicidal violence from ligature strangulation after finding a wire wound around her neck. So, while we initially believed that her cause of death was falling down a flight of stairs, burning her body, and then burying her body, there is more to the story. According to Simaresti, he told police he did not intend to kill Rose, but the argument got out of hand. Rose had a no-contact order against him following a recent domestic violence charge. Rose met Simaresti at the steps of their home and was recording on her phone to obtain proof that he was violating the court order. He stated they wrestled for Rose's phone, and he shoulder-checked her and knocked her down the concrete stairs. She hit her head on the wooden landing at the bottom of the stairs. Rose had blood coming out of her mouth and no pulse. Simaresti admitted he did not try to revive her. He then dragged her body to the basement. According to multiple sources, a web search of his phone revealed that he searched for, and I quote, how hot does a fire have to be to burn through bone, end quote. Oh my God. Yes. So no remorse. It happened and it's just like, let's let's get rid of the evidence. This was later discovered by investigators. The three men, Samaresti, Davis, and Rossback, then loaded her body in the back of an SUV and drove her body to the grave's location, bringing with them styrofoam cups, a board she had fallen on, and a gas can. So apparently gasoline and styrofoam can be mixed together to make a flammable substance that can stick to skin and burn, which is absolutely horrible. They this dug just the grave. feels like th- this sequence of events just escalated <clears throat> so quickly. From, like, her falling down to not trying to revive her, dragging her to the basement. You know, just, he just went right to it. When, let's point out, all of this could have been avoided if he had just maintained no contact. And just stayed stayed away away. and left her alone. But, I digress. Go ahead. There's not a whole lot protecting these women who have these issues. I mean, you can put a no contact order in place, but then, you know, you have to be able to Mm -hmm. have proof or call the police or you know that's what she was trying to do they dug the grave and then Simaresti and Davis ignited her body allegedly saying they were doing this for Simaresti's children which makes no sense how how was how would that be doing it for the kids no clue probably trying to justify like well now her mom's dead so her dad can't go to jail you know maybe Maybe. I don't know. If doing anything for the kids would have been to have no contact and just stay away and not put the kids through seeing parents in a very unhealthy, toxic relationship. But that's a little too like, right, 
I would, th- I would think. Yeah, and going through all this emotional stress. They let the body burn for several hours, according to investigators, before they covered her in the grave. Nearby trees had charred bark from the heat of the fire. Her official autopsy revealed she did not die from the fall down the steps, but from strangulation, a spinal fracture, and a damage to her skull, and a ligature mark around her neck was found. A badly so burned... Like, so did they, after she fell, did they strangle her to make sure she was dead? I think he did it before she fell. But, I mean, he could, I mean... If she didn't have a pulse, he said he checked her body and she didn't have a pulse after she fell on the stairs when there was blood coming out of her mouth. So maybe he did it before she fell. I don't know. I wonder how many steps it was. Are we talking like a, like a large flight of stairs or? I'm not sure. It didn't say. Yeah, I don't know. I imagine at least 10 to 12 stairs, right? I don't know how is that an apartment complex? If it is, then I would say, yeah, probably. Or was it at a house? It just said the residence. It didn't specify. But I would assume it's at their house because if this happened in an apartment complex, someone would have seen or heard something. Oh, it had to be a house because he said he dragged her to the basement. True. Good point. A badly burned wire was found at the scene of the burning. So Simaresi's charges changed from second-degree murder without intent to second-degree murder with intent. On February 10th, 2016, Davis is arrested and charged with aiding an offender. This was his cousin. A- April 18th, 2016, Marcello Simaresti pled guilty to second-degree intentional murder. He testified that on October 20th, the night of the incident, he lost it and snapped, killing Rose. He then provided the details of Davis and Rossback's involvement. The three men kept the secret of Rose's death and her whereabouts until Simaresti turned himself in. So they would have gotten away with it if he didn't turn himself in because the other two guys weren't saying anything. July 5th, 2016, Rossback pleaded not guilty to aiding an offender. He was later found guilty and sentenced to 16 years and nine months. On July 19th, 2016, Davis pleaded not guilty to aiding an offender, but was also found guilty and sentenced to 10 years and three months. So Rusty was sentenced to 35 years in prison during what was described as a tense and tearful Hearing, six members of Rose's family gave victim statements about the heartache and the loss they have endured. Darla Banks stated, quote, It's a mother's nightmare, a mother's horror for her to be buried in the woods and burned. This is horrible. Everything about this is horrible. End quote. And I cannot agree more. This story is so, so tragic. He only got 35 years for everything that he did, dragging her to the basement, burning her body, strangling her, burying her. And that's it. Shashi, that's like about the common time people get. Is it? Murdering someone. If it, if they don't get life, it's probably like 30 years. That's, that's a common. See, now that's even more scarier. Cause if you think about the level of brutality that's involved, like. I mean, it feels like in this I, one, he probably would have been charged with like, I don't know what it's called for like desecration of a body or, you know, like tampering with a crime scene or something like that. It feels like they probably could have charged him with more. But maybe since he was pleading guilty and gave them information about the body, uh-huh. maybe they were not as, you know, maybe they were hesitant to put all those charges on him. Or maybe that was part of his deal. But I would say, I mean, okay. even if you get life with the possibility of parole, I mean, you're out in probably 30, 35 years. I did not know that. That just seems like a short time for taking a life. 
Dennis Bakes, Rose's grandfather, the one I mentioned earlier, who was one of the founding fathers of AIM, made a statement saying that he was, if he was younger, he would have considered taking the law into his own hands. He states, quote, the monster who still breathes air and hears news of his children, his life will go on, but Rose is gone, end quote. So Shiashi, actually, I Googled it and it says that um, unless you're sentenced to life without parole, people serving life sentences are eligible for parole eventually. The minimum date by which they can go to the parole board varies, but in some states it's as little as 15 years. Wow. We're just going to have to close down this pod because I've got chills. That's, that's, that's scary. You know? <laughs> I just... It doesn't... That doesn't seem like enough to take away a mother and... The mother of your children. And, and you know, burn her body and just bury her and just... I, I guess in my mind I'm thinking like... The level of brutality and the level of cruelty, you know, in some states, it's like 15 years and then you get to go out and live the rest of your life while she's still gone. That doesn't seem fair. And then you're right. Those kids have to deal with that, too. You know, like they're going to grow up knowing yeah. their dad killed their mom. In such a tragic way. Well, with with the way media and the news is, I mean, the one Google search, you can find some basic information. Yeah, I mean, like, but, you can't even really protect. Once kids are teenagers, like, you wouldn't even be able to protect them from that information, probably. Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, in this case, the kids lost both both their parents. Because I, I could, can imagine the relationship with the dad's going to be, you know, the same. or If there's even a relationship there. Yeah. They may grow to resent him, which is understandable. Rose lost her life, but these five children, their lives are forever changed. And that also includes... Rose's mothers, her sisters, you know, her family. They're all forever changed because of one man's actions. Yeah, and you talked about how close, so you can imagine just her death and how many people's been affected by it. It sounds like at least the kids have this large extended family to kind of love them and comfort them and be a support system for them. You know, we had talked about this before, and me and you have talked about this, Maggie, I know, is that when we think of MMIW, we hear of like situations and things that happen like around us, but we don't actually think in terms of like, we know an MMIW or we were neighbors with somebody. You know what I mean? Like it just, it doesn't click right away until you really start getting into this and you're like, it's so normalized. Like we know this is a brutal, you know, tragedy. You know, you'll just read about it, but that shouldn't be something that's just normal. I grew up next to a woman who her husband killed her with a hammer. And I can like, you know, remember bits and pieces of that happening. But then you just kind of like store it away in your mind. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that happened. But it's just normal. You know, it's just bizarre. It's like reading news headlines. You know, when you see it, you're like, oh, my God, that's tragic. You you, you know, you read it and then you just keep scrolling on your phone or anything like that. And because it just happens because it happens so often. What are you sensitized to? Yeah. We are, and it's sad. It is very sad. You know, uh, I I know we're wrapping this up, but what I'm still kind of stuck on is just um, how easy it would have been to just... I I know that a no contact is a piece of paper. I get that. And there's not a lot of things out there to really protect women when it comes to these cases. God, if if it's in place... Just leave them alone. Leave her alone. Let her take care of her kids. Let these kids have a nice, peaceful home that's not filled with violence. It's just, I think that part really makes me angry. And I'm just kind of sitting here stewing on it. Um, that it, it would have been so simple just to 
leave her alone. I think that's the hard part about a lot of these cases, you know, when there's children involved and domestic violence issues. I think there's just a lot of uh, variables that come into play and it's not okay. But, you know, I think that drives a lot of people to to get in these situations. I mean, there's a no contact order, but, you know, obviously she didn't call the police as soon as she saw him. So she wasn't like super scared of him doing something. She was recording, right? Yeah, to show the cops. Yeah. To show the cops he'd violated it, yeah. So maybe she thought he was just going to come and, like, say something and leave, you know? Yeah, I guess you don't really anticipate that you're going to be, you know, shoulder-checked and knocked down a flight of stairs and everything else that's going to follow. Because you're right, stuff can happen just within a matter of seconds. And you just, I mean, I'm sure she knew he was violent or, you know, has dealt with that in the past, but you just never know what people are capable of. Yeah, and like he said, he just snapped. So he snapped and he lost it. And, I mean, obviously he's got some mental health issues. If he can't control his anger and can't control his anger to that extent. And so he he was a troubled man. He just, he couldn't handle his emotions or his anger. A lot of it stems to mental health and you know if you're having a mental health break it rational thinking just isn't possible if anything my heart just really hurts for rose's children her family it's hard to hear how quickly this situation escalated i hate hearing about women going through these situations and ultimately losing their lives as a result of domestic violence it just it needs to stop and that is rose downwind's tragic story A beautiful friend, a sister, a daughter, the most amazing mother. Her life was cut too short at the hands of someone who once loved her. And due to his own lack of self-control and his own toxic mentality, Rose's life was cut short too soon. According to Strong Heart's Native Helpline, American Indian and Alaska Native women suffer some of the highest rates of violence and murder in the United States, a crisis that has diminished the honored status of women and safety in tribal communities. By dialing 1-844-762-8483, callers can connect at no cost, one-on-one, with knowledgeable Strong Hearts advocates who can provide life-saving tools and immediate support to enable survivors to find safety and live lives free of abuse. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode or to stay up to date on what's coming next, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.